Arsenal friends, let's uh, let's go ahead and get started. Before I do, I just want to wish uh, a happy Mother's Day, a very happy happy Mother's Day to all the mothers and mothers to be. Uh, I pray you're loved today and cherished and adored today. Uh, and I know that today isn't a celebration for all of us. Some of us, it's a it's a sorrowful day, a grieving day. Uh, know that. I'm praying for you, your elders are praying for you, and uh, Christ sees this and loves you. Um, and to Kristen, happy Mother's Day. Can't wait to see you, Mother Ingrid, in, in faithfulness. Hey, about a year ago, uh, the elders allowed me to, to preach Micah, the prophet Micah, and uh, I was so excited to, to get the opportunity to do this. And obviously this isn't the format that we all would desire, um, but in the Lord's kind providence, um, he has um, he's allowed us to do this. So we trust him in his goodness, and we look forward to what the Lord's going to do in the future. Hey, the prophet Micah. Micah is the sixth book of the Minor Prophets, and... Um, Although they're not minor in significance, they are uh, minor in length. And so um, Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, ministering in the, in the uh, 8th century, not 16th. In the 8th century, uh, during the reigns of King Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, uh, you see that in chapter 1, uh, verse 1. Micah had uh, such similar theological emphases as Isaiah that some might even call him the little cousin of Isaiah. So some of those uh, emphases are the, the transcendence, the, the bigness, the otherness of God, right? Um, you think of texts like Isaiah 6 where uh, Isaiah is brought in for his calling into prophetic ministry and um, all he could just say is, woe is me for I am unworthy, right? So the transcendence of God, the, the bigness of God is big for both of these men. Uh, and their messages are, are largely similar in terms of the severity of sin, the importance of sin, the, the, the depth of their sin. And in light of that, the judgment of God is coming. And uh, as such, they're calling for the people of God to repent. So the repentance is the major theme as well. Additionally, the, the messianic promise so we think of texts like Isaiah uh, 7 and 9 and even 53, the suffering servant. And here in Micah, you see texts, uh, Micah 5, 1 through 4, and even our text today. Um, both both uh, books are filled with this messianic hope that uh, this, this new king, this new ruler, this new shepherd is going to come and rescue and deliver his people. Also Zion, the temple is, is big and Lastly, the, the future remnant, the, the hope of all nations, the hope that God in Christ is going to save uh, his people from all nations. I just want to give a brief structure of Micah. As, uh, I have found it helpful in, in understanding the book. Um, and after that, we'll, we'll dive into our text, which is Micah 7, 8 through 20. So if you can go ahead and turn there, Micah 7, 8 through 20, as we touch on briefly the, the structure and the overview of, of Micah. At first glance, uh, Micah may seem contradictory or even repetitious. 
uh, right? So contradictory in the sense of at one point, God is declaring judgment uh, on his people. In the very next verse, there's God delivering his people via salvation. So it seems kind of contradictory or even repetitious, right? So if you read throughout the book this week, you saw that, well, it's judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation. However, God through Micah is, is using a, a literary form of uh, Hebrew poetic form of intensification. Uh, intensification. So it might be helpful to look at the book in three movements, each being amplified and intensified on the previous. The three movements are chapters 1 through 2, chapters 3 through 5, and chapters 6 through 7. So Mike is starting off chapter 1 and he's only amplifying. It's kind of like a, a musical score, like it's, it's uh, approaching its climax, its crescendo. So in the first movement, chapters 1 through 2, God is denouncing idolatry and justice and oppression and sin of Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria here is in reference to Israel, and Jerusalem is in reference to Judah. And remember, uh, the nation of Israel is, is split into two kingdoms, right? The northern and southern kingdom. So he's bringing judgment on both. And uh, particularly, he's emphasizing in this book the, the leaders, or the kings and priests, prophets, are of note. Um, they are oppressing, and they're causing injustice to uh, be developed throughout the land. And God's judgment here is exile. He's going to bring the Assyrians and the Babylonians to ravage the city and take them into exile. But God provides a, a sure hope in the shepherd king's rescue of his remnant. You see that in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. So that's the first movement. Second movement, God is, is condemning the horrendous sin of the religious leaders. So he's getting a little bit more specific here. And um, the sin is to such a degree that Micah describes it as the leaders building Zion with blood. Uh, so even unto death are the, the people oppressing, or the, the leaders oppressing the people and causing injustice throughout the land. So as a result, God judges the, the people by causing the temple to become just a hill in a forest. Um, the temple is destroyed. So the idea is that God is removing his dwelling presence from, from the people. Yet, uh, through this Davidic king that's to be born in Bethlehem, right, whose, whose origins are from of old, from ancient of days, he's going to reestablish the temple. He's going to reestablish the temple on Mount Zion and gather his people from all nations, from all peoples. That's the second movement. And the third Third, God confronts the people through what's called a traditional covenantal lawsuit. It has uh, courtroom language there in chapter 6, where God is the, the prosecutor, he's the judge, and he's the witness even. And God sentences them to utter destruction and complete desolation. Yet again, God remains true to himself and his covenant by sending the shepherd king who removes sin, demonstrating that there is no one comparable to the transcendent, underived, and self-sufficient God. So that's a, a brief overview of the structure of Micah. And we've arrived at our text, Micah 7, 8. Micah 7, 8 through 20. Um, let me read the text, and uh, we'll pray and we'll jump in. Micah 7, 8. 
Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him, until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light, and I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her, now she will be trampled down like the mire in the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they, sh they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. The ear shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come out. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds, and they shall dread to the Lord our God. And they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Would you pray with me? God Almighty, you are, you are so good to us. Even in these days of COVID-19, you are so good to us. Help us now. Help us now to receive your word with humble hearts and open minds, to cast our gaze upon you, what you've done for us in Christ Jesus, that it may spur us on to love and good works. Be with us now. Help us even now. It's in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Four truths. Four truths from, from these texts. First, God deals emphatically with our sin and the enemy. God deals emphatically with our sin and the enemy. See that in verses 8 through 10. Second, God builds his true city. God builds his true city. It's 11 through 13. Third, God shepherds his people. God shepherds his people, 14 through 17. And then finally, God is incomparable because he passes over transgression. First, God deals emphatically with our sin and the enemy. Chapter 7 begins with the second woe here in Micah, and this time it is pronounced on Micah himself. As Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord and thereby saw his own unworthiness and uncleanness, so here Micah describes himself among the sinful nation. Right there in verse 2 of chapter 7, there is no one upright among mankind. So Micah is, isn't putting himself off to the side as an excuse, but no, he's, he's right in the midst of the sinful people, 
rightfully deserving the wrath of God, right? There in verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Corruption, oppression, and idolatry has, has withered the nation completely dry. However, Micah describes what characterizes the remnant, the one whom the Lord will save. In verse 7, he says, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. So this notion of, of waiting and, and even looking is important. For judgment is coming, right? It's inevitable. But the Lord, who is the prosecutor announcing judgment throughout the book, is now Israel's defender. Is now Israel's defender. The Lord is going to deal with his people's offenses himself. So confidence in the Lord and his promises characterize the people of the Lord, both in Micah's day and today. So now in, in 7-8, Micah turns to the final refrain of his book, and it's a supremely, supremely hope-filled and joy-filled one. Micah knows he gets the final word. It's not sin, nor the enemy, not even the, the discipline of the Lord, right? Because even in the midst of the sin-filled nation and even Micah's own evil-wrought heart, the Lord sends light to his people who deserve nothing short of judgment. But notice the wording there in verse 8. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. The Lord himself is the light among his sinful people. He is the hope in every time of need. He is the reason we are able to rise in darkness. Right? So, though darkness will come, God is ready at hand to restore us. God is ready at hand to lift us up. God is ready at hand to welcome us back into his house to dine with him. Though we screw up and will screw up, right? Though we fall into sin, and though we even reap the effects of a sinful world, the Lord is still the ever-present light to lift us out of our miry arrogance, out of our self-pity, out of the abuse, out of the oppression. The Lord is our light. How will he do this now? How will he lift us up. Well, Micah knows that he must bear the sorrow and, and suffering for a while. Right? Judgment is coming. He must bear sorrow. But joy always comes in the morning. Joy always comes in the morning. The Lord sends himself to plead the cause of his people and execute judgment for them. The people of God have always been characterized by their confession and contrition of sin, thereby looking unto God himself for advocacy and help. God has promised in Christ to be our Father, whose protection and help will never be wanting. And preeminently, right, God pleads our cause in Christ, who bears the judgment of God that is rightfully due us. This is what Micah is longing for and looking ahead toward. Right? Though he may not know specifics, he, he trusts that God himself will plead the cause of his people and execute judgment on their behalf. And after, God's, after God does this work of pleading and executing, he brings us into the light for us to look upon his righteousness or his salvation or his vindication there. It's as a result of this pleading work, we are, we are brought into his light to look upon what he has done. Friends, how marvelous is this? 
since the Lord is the light, we are brought into union with him so that we can commune with him by marveling upon what he has done on our account for his glory. I'm reminded of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, where he says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So based upon Christ and what he has done, the Spirit makes us into a new creation, unites us to Christ, and leads us into all truth. The Spirit brings us into Christ to gaze upon his righteous act of salvation. We gaze upon God himself. This is what Christians throughout the centuries have meant by the, the beatific vision, right? To, for, that we're able to, to know, to enjoy, to love, to fellowship fully in God. We're able to look God in the face. Jonathan Edwards says on the beatific vision, the pleasure of seeing God is so great and so strong that it takes the full possession of the heart. It fills brimful so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature from joy. There is no darkness that can bear such powerful light. All we need, friends, is abundantly provided in Christ Jesus. Eternal pleasure and eternal joy. And there in verse 10, you can see Micah sort of uh, ramping up, sort of getting excited in his in his worship. Takes it to a, a next note, right? Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her as she is trampled down by the foot of Christ Jesus, our mediator and vindicator. Again, I'm reminded of Colossians 2, 13 through 15, where, where Paul is accounting for our being alive in Christ, our being brought into that light. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friends, this is what happens as a result of the Spirit now in our lives, right? Remember in John 16 when Jesus is telling his disciples that the Spirit is coming? First, the disciples' hearts are filled with sorrow. But the reality is that the Spirit fills our hearts with joy because we're able to recognize the end of the enemy. Time and time again, this enemy will whisper and tempt us with questions like, did God really say... Or even, where is the Lord your God? Or, you're never going to get out of that pit of shame and guilt. Or even, you're only a sinner. If they really knew the true you. We, we, yes, enemy, we are sinners who are deeply broken and have been deeply broken by other people's sins. But we know your end. We know that your head has been crushed by Jesus Christ. And this Christ has lifted us up and restored us. So we can echo with the infamous Kanye West who says, where Satan will often say, you're only going to do what Adam did. But we can respond in Christ by saying, no, 
Let's put this back on the tree because we have everything we need in Christ Jesus. Christian, God has emphatically dealt with your sin and the enemy in Christ. And now Christ is presently interceding for us on our behalf. His intercession and advocacy on our behalf raises higher than our sins. His intercession and advocacy speaks louder than our failures. So we can declare with Micah, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, for we have all we need in Christ Jesus. Justification, satisfaction, healing, and security. Your end is sure, enemy, and your head is crushed, and all has been taken care of. Second, God builds the true city. God builds the true city. Here in the verses 11 through 13, um, Micah is speaking about the physical return from exile and the rebuilding of the city walls, right? So uh, the people are going into exile, and now God is going to return and bring them back, and he's going to rebuild the city walls. However, this extending of the boundary walls demonstrates the ingathering of the people of God from all nations, right? Micah describes this in chapter 4. The temple on Mount Zion has, has been destroyed, right? It's, it's, it's plundered. It's just a hill in the forest. But now it's being reestablished. It's being reestablished through the Davidic Messianic shepherd king. He calls forth throughout the earth, from Syria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, and from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. Previously, you know that in chapter 3, the priests and the prophets, they... They only charged the people. To, they charged the people to hear the word of the Lord. Right? They they bribed them for their own selfish gain. But now, our humble Lord Jesus Christ is proclaiming from the top of Zion to all nations to come to Him, and He's doing this free of charge. The you here in verse twelve is similar to how we understand verse eleven, right? Whereas verse eleven referred to both the return from Babylonian exile and the ingathering of the people of God from all nations. The you here is that all nations will come to is Jerusalem. The city, like Mount Zion, represents the, the end goal of the people gathering. However, from what we know about Jesus and his work, he is the representative of Israel, the true representative, the true son of God. God is rebuilding the city in Christ Jesus. Remember Jesus' language about the temple being destroyed and in three days it would rise again? Jesus was referring to himself. Remember when Paul identifies Jesus as the second Adam? Whereas in Adam all his representatives die, but in Christ all his representatives live? Man, the nations are actually coming to him. The true city. God is, is building it even now. And what a charge this is for us, Emmaus. God is, is actively building his city from all nations through Christ by the Spirit. And he commissions and invites us to join him. In fact, our declaration of the gospel is the means by which he is building the city. So share this good news. Declare and display the good news of Christ Jesus, that he has pleaded the cause of his people and executed judgment for them. What marvelous news this is. Third, 
God shepherds his flock. God shepherds his flock. In these verses, we see a contrast of two flocks, one who is shepherded by God through this Davidic shepherd king and, and those who crawl the earth, licking the dust while in dread of the Lord. Here, the emphasis is on the faithful shepherding that the new and better ruler will do. As we look back in chapters 1 and 3, the leaders of Israel are unbelievably unfit for leading. And it shows in their acts of oppression and injustice and corruption and wickedness. But now, this new, kind and gentle Davidic shepherd king will lead his flock to graves and greener and richer pastures. And this kind and gentle shepherd king does some marvelous things. And I want to read chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, what he does for his people who are in exile. Verse 12 of chapter 2, I will surely assemble you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. This new shepherd isn't contrasted with just the, the leaders in Micah, right? But, but rather all of Israel's leaders and figures. Generation after generation, the people needed a shepherd who would be faithful to God and lead them. I mean, think all the way back to Adam and Abraham and Moses and, and David. Each one failed. And the people were made captives to their own sin and made slaves by other nations. Now, this new shepherd will actually fulfill what God requires, and he will lead his people faithfully to green pastures and protect them from surrounding nations. The good shepherd's staff performs double duty, both to protect and to guide. In a sober yet hopeful manner, Micah tells what happens to those who reject this shepherd king's voice, right? Shame. Cursing, deafness, muteness, dreadful trembling. Before, the enemy's power was large, and Israel feared it. But now, nothing is compared to the, to the shepherd king's power. He breaks through the enemy walls and retrieves his people. Before, the enemy, through hurling insults and mockery and idolatry to God. But now, they will have nothing to say. However, not all hope is lost for the nations. They are overwhelmed by fear of God, providing the opportunity to turn to him in faith. Remember last week in Jonah, the two accounts of, of Gentiles turning to God in fear and repentance. The sailors on the boat amidst the crazy storm. And out of fear, they, they repent and make vows unto God. And the Ninevites, out of Jonah's short and reluctant message, they... They turn in fear and repentance. As one commentator says, as the experience of the locust plague in Egypt resulted in knowledge of God, so too will his current and future wondrous deeds yield the same for both Israel and the nations. God provides the means and opportunity for, for the people to turn to him. Fear leading to repentance in worship or Continued hostility and arrogance leading to destruction. I'm thinking of Paul in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 7, where he says that godly sorrow leads to life and worldly sorrow leads to death. And the phrase by Pastor Sam is always in my head when repenting of sin, of that repentance only ever yields life. So a charge here for you, Emmaus. Whose word are you listening to and, and will listen to? The ever-faithful shepherd king or the ever-deceitful enemy? Will you submit to the Lord in fear and worship, knowing that he will lead you to rich pastures? Or will you reject his voice and follow the arrogant toward death? Fourth, finally, God is incomparable because he passes over transgression. God is incomparable because he passes over transgression. Micah bursts into worship with his question, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and, and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Calvin, John Calvin says similarly, the true and only God may be distinguished from all idols by this circumstance. He graciously forgives the sins of his people and bears with their infirmities. In divine freedom and goodness, the Lord lavishes his grace upon his sinful people. God is shown to be utterly incomparable and really altogether different, right? It's because he is not dependent on Israel's worship and faithfulness that he's able to forgive and pass over transgression. This is the exact kind of God Israel needs and that we need. One who is not dependent on anything outside of himself because God is fullness of life in himself. As one of my favorite theologians would say, he is a, a boundless ocean of being. Boundless. So only a God who is full of life can richly bestow life. Only a God full of grace can definitively forgive and get rid of sin. Only a God who is underived can uphold and sustain weak and needy people. It is evident then that he is the true God, the only God, and his well will never run dry. Here Micah is paraphrasing a well-known creed in Israel from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. There in Exodus 34, Moses has come down from Sinai with the Ten Commandments only to find Aaron and Israel worshiping a golden calf that they've constructed, even attributing to it their deliverance from Egypt. After Moses returns to the mountain, he intercedes on behalf of the people and pleads with God to be merciful. Sound familiar? After God forgives, Moses sees, uh, excuse me, Moses asks to see the glory of the Lord. Now remember, Moses has already had a few unique encounters with God, namely the, the burning bush where God, has, God revealed himself as I am who I am, denoting several things such as self-sufficiency, eternality, preeminence, perfection, this can go on. And here in Exodus 34, God further reveals more of himself. The text reads, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children. 
We saw this quote last week in Jonah, and it again appears here in Micah. This is because God is displaying his utter uniqueness, right? That he alone is God. And he's doing this through his mercy, through his grace, through his steadfast love, through his faithfulness to all peoples. So it's right to ask this sort of question, what, what kind of God must there be in order for him to be this gracious and this merciful? Well, to God who is unchanging, self-sufficient, and eternally full of life, light, and love. Calvin says it well that the remissions of sin is gratuitous, and it has no foundation but in the nature of God himself. For he himself is the cause. This is his glory, right? Moses asked to see the glory of the Lord. This is it. He tells them. God's grace and his mercy is infinite because he himself is infinite. He loves freely without any moving cause in us. This is his nature. In his glory, this nature has been incarnated, full of grace and truth in Jesus Christ. Let us run and cling to him because the reality is He's the one holding on to us. As Chris and I are preparing for our little girl Ingrid to arrive and uh, try to learn how to parent, uh, I'm reminded of how undisciplined children, my parents would, would often say something like, this is okay now, but the next time I see you, next time I see you do this, you're gonna have it coming. While it's, you know, it's good intention, this is different with God. He doesn't hold contempt with his children. No, he, he completely passes over our transgression. He, he forgives to the uttermost. God sends himself in light. He pleads our cause. He executes judgment for us. He brings us into his light, into himself, and allows us to gaze upon his righteousness, gaze upon himself, and allows us to say over the enemy, you were defeated in Christ Jesus. Your head is crushed. You have nothing over me. So God emphatically deals with our sin by drowning them in the depths of the sea. Our sins will never be heard nor seen from anymore. The basis of our hope is the same as it was for Micah, the enduring and gracious character of our God. So Christian, you are eternally secure because there is no one who compares to our merciful God. Four brief charges for you. First, look into the incomparable God who has definitively dealt with your sin in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the shepherd king, Jesus Christ. The darkness of the night will inevitably come, whether in sin or in pain or despair, but the Lord's mercies are new every morning. The light of the sun will shine on you and warm you in his love. And one day, darkness will be no more. No more nights of sin, no more nights of pain, no more nights of suffering, no more nights of despair. The light, Jesus Christ, will shine forevermore. So come to Jesus, because he doesn't get flustered by our confessions. He doesn't get frustrated by our pleas for healing, nor our needy distresses. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin puts it like this, 
your heart be hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart be dead, he has mercy to liven it. If your heart be sinful, he has mercies to sanctify and cleanse you. God is more the father of mercies than Satan is the father of sin. Second charge. When the whispers and temptations of the enemy come, remind him of his defeat, his end, and his powerlessness because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. When he comes in temptation and insults through shame and guilt, put the apple back on the tree because you have everything you need in Christ Jesus. Everything you need. Remind him of his defeat because it's sure. Third, even though we didn't cover this text, Micah 6 verse 8 is an important one. Because in order for the people to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before their God, they must have themselves reoriented, their hearts and minds reoriented, to gaze upon the incomparable and merciful God. They must know who God is. Thus, my charge is for the believer, right? If you've been reoriented, right, you, your case up in, has been pleaded for, you Judgment has been executed for you. You have been brought into the light and are gazing upon the righteousness of God. If that's you, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before your God. Fourth, and finally, declare what the triune God has done and is doing in Christ by the Spirit. In the Good Shepherd King, God is building his true city from all nations. So declare and display this wonderful and marvelous news of Christ Jesus, pleading our cause, executing judgment for us, bringing us into the light, and gaze, allowing us to gaze upon his righteousness. Emmaus, thanks for being patient and kind with, with me, a young and inexperienced one. May God bless you and keep you this week. Make his face to shine upon you. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.